Hey, and welcome to the Kiwi Advisor Network podcast. I'm the host, Warwick Slow, and today's guest is Eugene Bartsaiken from Twine Financial Advisors. Eugene's built up his business over the past five years to having nine staff. He's uh, amazing at building out a strategy, implementing it, and also his process through recruiting advisors and the way that he remunerates them is really interesting. I think you'll enjoy it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Eugene, thanks so much for joining us today. Absolutely. It's such a pleasure to be here. I love uh, I love the, the studio. I love the fact that you guys are actually doing this as well. Like it's so good to bring the industry together. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of the I Love Mortgage Brokering podcast. Oh, what's that one? Uh, it's a Canadian-based one. And, uh, and they've been doing it for quite a few years and I actually got quite a lot of inspiration from it uh, in terms of getting started with the business. And it's, lo- it's great to actually have, in this context, local, local people, local faces uh, and something more tailored to the New Zealand industry. So I appreciate you guys making the effort to do this. I'm stoked to hear it because that's exactly what we're trying to do. You know, there's, there's so much great information out there that advisors like yourself have. Like, why not share it? And uh, so how long have you had Twine for? Uh, in November will be five years. Great. Five years. So this time, five years ago, my wife and I, we were still in Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were traveling for three months. We kind of needed to have that sort of quarter life crisis break. <laughs> <laughs> so we traveled for three months and we went all across through Southeast Asia. And as of, as of today, through five years ago, we were in Vietnam on our way towards Cambodia. So that was, a, that was a fun time. At that point in time, Twine was not a concept or idea. Uh, we weren't really certain in terms of what we wanted to do. But uh, having that break was actually quite, quite nice because it did give us that time to reflect as far as what do we want to do? How do we see ourselves? And do you still have those breaks and kind of get out there and... Uh... Uh, starting to. Yeah, strategy. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's the, 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 the trials and tribulations of owning a business, right? You've, um, you've got to get the work done. And this, I think especially in the early days when it was quite dependent on me, uh, it was difficult for me to go away for a week or two weeks or let alone a month, right? Um, because our clients are there. And almost everyone I've talked to in our industry, we care for our clients. We want to be available for them we want to help them and almost even though we sometimes need that break it feels bad to even just tell the client hey sorry we're we're away but we're at a stage now we've grown a bit of a business so I can actually take a bit of time off so for the first time in a while we finally went on a little family holiday to Queenstown just just the other week so that was nice it's nice to just get out there and relax and if you've got I don't know. If it's just you and the business, maybe one or two others, it can be tough to take those breaks. But how many are on the team now? I think you've grown a fair bit, haven't you? Uh, we're a team of seven. Great. So there's, uh, there's myself, uh, there's two other advisors, uh, Galena and um, Daniel. Then I have a few loan writers or associate advisors, we call them. Uh, that's Ruben um, and uh, Dylan. And we just recently hired someone, uh, Kayla, who's here to help, help me out with my client base too. My wife works in the business as well, so she's the business manager. She makes sure that all the pieces, puzzle pieces fit together. So she doesn't do any advisory work, but she just makes sure that we are at our best. Now you mentioned you have seven staff now. Well, seven in total. Seven in total, yeah. yeah. Uh, so Rupert was saying that, uh, Rupert Goff from Mortgage yeah. Lab, he said when he got to that seven advisor mark, that's when he started being able to pass things off. You know, the team were helping each other. Are you finding that as well? Yeah. 
Absolutely. Like my um, my time is now more spent working on the business rather than in it. Uh, it's also not uncommon now for clients to even reach out directly to the associate advisor for for specific questions. I have to remember to, hey, this is an advisory question. I, have, I better answer that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're very much at that stage where I can depend on my team. Like we went away for a week. I spent maybe 15 minutes a day just forwarding off emails. I didn't really need to worry at all. So I'd say very much at this stage, I'd see it as a business because it's more than just me. It's the team, the clients, the systems, the processes, all of it's starting to really come together. But it took a while to really get to that point. Yeah, how, how did you get to that point? Was there, <laughs> is it just like trial by uh, trial and error or what? It was one step at a time, uh, one step at a time. We took a, as organic of an approach as possible. So we started the business with just me. Um, really, it was before we finished the holiday, my wife and I, we just sat next to each other and we went through a process of thinking, well, where would we like to be at 35? What is future Eugene or future Irene do? Um, what does their day look like? How do they spend their time? Um, what are they known for? And going through that sort of introspective process had enabled us to the point to realize that, yes, we actually want to have a business, not just we want to be self-employed. Um, and that gave us at least some direction as far as which way are we heading. But both of us, I'd say, are reasonably conservative as far as the decisions that we make. And uh, and as a result, we just took kind of one step at a time from, from it was initially just me, then eventually my wife started helping me out, and then um, then we made our first hire, which is actually my sister, Galena. <laughs> so it's very <laughs> much... The family. Yeah, very much so, right? Um, and then we had the first external hire, then we had our first little office, probably not much bigger than this room, really. <laughs> yeah, this office this room the size of, uh, I'd say, like a, a standard double bedroom. Yeah, okay, maybe we had a little bit more space here, yeah. but, but, but still, it wasn't very big. Um, and then eventually we expanded, hired again. It was just one step at a time. We tried to kind of learn, uh, learn from every experience. Uh, but... I can't say that, you know, five years ago I knew exactly what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. It's this constant process of spending time every day to think about how can I do this better? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe my perception of the steps I should take is different. Who should I talk to about it and, um, uh, and take it from there? So was it just you and uh, Irene running through it? Did you have any other external people or mentors or business coaches that helped you along the way? Yeah, um, I've had a few mentors along the way. I drew inspiration from the different places I worked. Um, so I worked at the bank initially, then I worked at JB Ware. Um, actually, the head of um, the head of JB Ware is still my, I guess, casual mentor. We still catch up once a year or so just to kind of talk about business and the, the challenges of running a business or growing a business. So I'm really grateful for that. And what was also really surprising is just within the industry itself, everyone's very collaborative. So someone that I also admire and very grateful for is Jeff Royal, who's been on this podcast too. I haven't actually met him in person, but we spent so much time on the phone, I feel like I know him well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, since we both at the time lived in the Hibiscus Coast, where well, he still lives there, um, we 
um, you know, it's it's not uncommon to see his car in the in the number plate as well. So you know, we I, I do see him from that point of view. Um, however, he would he would give me some some advice and guidance as 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 far as a few challenges that I had at the time, and he will help also workshop through deals. And so I think the fact that we can pick up the phone and talk to an industry peer has actually been invaluable. So I can't say I've had formal mentors as such in the industry, but I think drawing inspiration from different people um, is a great way to build up that experience if you haven't had that experience directly yourself. And um, maybe use Jeff as an example, but did you just pick up the phone and call him? How did you... Because a lot of advisors could just do this to any other business in, in the industry. I literally just sent him a Facebook message. There you go. Yeah, pretty easy. <laughs> I think like uh, maybe there's um, a bit of a hangover from where the industry used to be, where it was mm. very uh, inter-competitive. Mm. You'd do your thing and other advice businesses would do theirs. Mm. But I think now a lot of advisors just want to raise the bar mm. overall so that mm. the industry can yep. grow as a whole. I think so. Um, I was, I was, we were just talking about this before we started. I mean, one thing that stood out to me when, um, when I left iRefi in the day uh, was Andrew actually told me, hey, look, it's a, it's a big sea out there. Wish you all the best. Like, create your own unique service proposition and, um, and go out there. You know, like, it's a, not necessarily at competition with each other. We want to kind of grow the industry as a whole. Because if we think about it, less than half of all of all mortgages are actually done through mortgage advisors in New Zealand. So you can have the entire industry easily double its workload. There is capacity. There is there is capacity within itself to do that. And um, and I think that's a, that's a good thing because consumers love working with mortgage advisors. There's that element of having a relationship with a client and knowing their circumstances and helping them make these big decisions. And as well with the new legislation, I think the end goal is that the FMA wants more trust in the industry. You know, they want people to look at financial advisors and not just see it as a middleman or a, a 100%. Yeah. I think the the regulation, clients probably haven't really maybe fully realized how much has actually changed. <laughs> However, the element of professionalism is definitely something that's increased a lot. Like even going through our own um, FAP licensing process, it's such a great way to look at your business and look at every single step. How can I put in this operations manual? How can I refine this process? What's my business continuity plan? All these little details um, have been really explored through this FAP process. And that brings about professionalism in terms of how we run the business and we're not the only ones going through this. Others are too whether you're doing your own under under your own FAP license or joining another, right? These systems and processes are put in place that means you're not necessarily starting from scratch. And how do you begin to improve a process or start putting it down? I know that we've gone through, we've added, we've got a software tool that we build out a diagram and then if something's a pain point or something's a slow journey for us or the client, we'll mark it in red and try and improve it. How, how do you do that? Well, we try to embrace a culture within the firm of continuous improvement that we as the owners of the business don't necessarily have it right. Maybe there's room for improvement. Maybe what we've suggested could be tweaked or could be done better. So every single week we have a sales meeting 
and, and we have an operations meeting. At the operations meeting, we talk about all these little uh, pain points or things that could be adjusted or changed. And then we think about, well, how can we improve it? And I think having that sort of environment that everyone on the team can speak out and say, hey, actually, I think this process could be improved. We're wasting too much time doubling up doing this or doing that. How can we do it better? And then we go ahead and actually implement it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I think it's in some ways it's probably um, a symptom of having a, a reasonably small business where we can all have an equal conversation about really how can we improve this. But having that culture of continuous improvement is I think a great way to look at something and see it for what it could be rather than necessarily for what it is. And I remember even when I worked at JBWare as a much larger business, that we still implemented that culture of continuous improvement. Perhaps it wasn't as making big changes, but even small tweaks in terms of how we do our, how we do our jobs every day would mean that added process over time. I was chatting to an advisor today about just having an, an automated email that gets sent out every time a client finishes the process that just asks for a review. And something like that that can take maybe like 30 minutes to set up could be a huge tangible difference to the business. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Even just looking in terms of high level, where where are we spending our time? We're not currently doing timesheets per se because the work is commission-based. But um, I think even looking at terms of blocks of time, where we're spending our time and how can we make that more effective, that could actually enable us to find efficiencies. And, um, and one of the things that really made me want to grow the business beyond, or a few, from let's say a few, a few years ago, really wanting to grow it more than just me as the advisor, was it got to a point where my, my support staff were helping me with putting together applications, but I was still reviewing every single thing. <laughs> I was still reviewing the the the, um, the the lending proposals that we'll give to clients. I was reviewing everything. And I realized I don't actually want to be responsible for a thousand different deals every year. Um, I'd rather actually want to build a business for the advisors to be successful. And that actually led us to you know that pain point of me spending too much time reviewing all the work because the advice had to come from me. Um, to, that allowed me to actually go um, to the point of let's grow this business and grow the people within our business so they could be exceptional advisors when it's their time. And how did you meet those advisors? And how did you get them into the? Were they already in the industry or? Um, mostly no. Okay. Um, so most had little to low to no experience directly in lending. I found that actually in some ways this was a good thing and in some ways it was probably a bad thing, but we, you have to weigh it up, right? So on the advantage side, we were able to build up someone's way of looking at any given client file from scratch. We could say, actually, this is the way that we do things. We do things in a really thorough way. We look at all these permutations and possibilities, um, how you know, and as a result, those good practices were built in. Um, however, for those who already had some lending experience, would sometimes their experience would conflict with, with what our point of view is, right, or the firm's point of view is, and that had in some ways had to be untrained 
um, to then retrain, if that makes sense. And this is particularly relevant, let's say, transferring from bank mindset to advisor mindset because in the bank there are exceptional people who work there. But when your product range is limited to what you're working on, that's all you can give advice on. It either fits or it doesn't fit. But the advisory mindset is, well, how can we make it fit? You know, we don't have to write an offer letter. <laughs> we can give the client some coaching in terms of where are they falling short? Is it income? Is it deposit? Or, um, or is it in terms of some of their spending habits that might be leading them down to achieve what they're looking to do? Um, and, um, or potentially com- having a combined approach. Maybe a non-bank lender might make sense initially with a view that we exit back to a bank afterwards. And so um, that sort of, that advisory mindset had to be, um, I guess, learned, right? You must got to knock it down, build it from the ground up again. Mm, exactly. So in some ways, it was good that we were able to just to teach advisory mindset early on. But the big disadvantage is, is those, still those core concepts of lending all still had to be taught and it takes time. It took really a good three months to get to maybe 60% productivity. Then another three months to maybe get to 80%. So it t- takes a while for really someone to actually learn lending because that's a skill set in and of itself. So pros and cons. I think as our business has grown and my capacity probably to be able to train more people is now maybe less than what it was before, I'll probably be more inclined towards um, towards hiring those with already existing experience rather than trying to train up from the ground up again. So it really depends, I think, on wanting to make sure that as a business we can actually provide the resources to the new hire so that they can actually increase their skill set. So if I had, if I knew I had minimal time to be able to invest in that person, I'm probably better off hiring an experienced person, right? Um, because otherwise I'll, I'll be doing them a disservice if... Can't I'm, give them the same time and you're yeah, used to. Exactly. That can be taught, but it's the attitude that's the most important. You know, if someone is teachable, they want to learn and they are passionate for the industry, they're passionate for the, for the property industry or for the lending industry, they have interest in it, that will naturally make it easier to learn. And so I think I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that our team has that. Like everyone's involved in property in some way or another. So almost everyone's first deal is their own. <laughs> first day, here's all the bank calculators, plug in your own details and, and, and see what you can do for yourself, right? And, um, and that's a great way to, I think, get a, some familiarity in terms of uh, you know, what's actually possible. And so everyone's got their own strategy in terms of where they're actually going with their own finances. Your journey of hiring uh, staff with experience versus, uh, you know, right culture fit but no experience is similar to what we're kind of facing now as well. Where, you know, when I started, I was new to industry, it was like two and a half years ago. But because we only had, you know, eight or nine people in the company, it was really easy to do that training. Where now we're finding it's probably better just to hire experienced people. Yeah, 100%. So, it's it's <clears throat> very much comes down to, the ability to actually provide the mentoring and guidance to the new hire. If we have to, we have to be realistic about it, can we? <laughs> because if we can't, then um, then we're better off getting experienced staff. Simple as that. Uh, again, otherwise it's just a disservice 
to them and um, and it's not allowing them to fulfill their own full potential. Um, so I very much see my role as not really only a mortgage advisor, but I, we've been working towards building this business. And this business exists for, um, for our clients. Um, it exists so that they've got the ability to work with us and we can have build those relationships with them. But it also works, but it also exists for our staff as well um, because this is what gives them the platform to build a fulfilling and um, a, a, a fulfilling career. Um, and I guess in the end, it also works for us too. We own the business, um, but the business is only as good as the people within it. So we're very much... We're very much uh, invested in terms of growing our people um, and working on it, on that business, and expanding it from there. And so, I, I but you know, as you talked about before, you know, we're we're kind of at that stage where we can really work on it, not just in it. And this sort of almost quieter market has allowed us to take that time to really work on it. it so I'm grateful for it. Do you think long term? you know, you'd be just managing the business rather than giving the advice or do you still want to hold on to that? I think I'll always still be an advisor, always. I think I'll always at least have a core set of clients which I'll always work with. Um, and um, But it'll just be a case of how much of my time do I spend on it. You know, <clears throat> before it could have been 100%, whereas now it might be, let's say, 70%. Maybe eventually it might come down to, let's say, 30 or 40% and then the rest of my time is spent working on the business. Party. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> going back to Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> one day, <laughs> one day. Okay, and one thing I'd like to talk about because a lot of advisors ask me is um, when it comes to remuneration for staff. So you said before you're on a commission split. Um, how did you land on that? Like, what's the what's the process behind it? So, <clears throat> all our staff are on a salary. Okay. Advisors are based on a salary plus bonus. And the bonus is effectively a, a, a pro rata split. That's effectively what it is. So if X revenue is, um, is, uh, is obtained by that advisor, then there's a split that's, a, that's based on that. Um, and then basically that split, less their base pay, becomes their, their quarterly bonus. And that bonus is just rolls over. So, for example, if you fall short one quarter, it's usually because of timing differences, you know. It could be that clients weren't as active or they had to postpone their settlement for another time. It's not fair to penalize the advisor for not settling it during that time frame. So basically it's on based on a rolling year. So if you've got a bad quarter, that rolls through to the next right. to the next quarter. And then after a year, if it's still negative, right? <laughs> if it's still something <laughs> outstanding, we probably need to adjust the base because maybe the base was too high. Um, and also there's a performance discussion as well, right, in terms of, well, what is actually happening here? But to be fair, it shouldn't take a year <laughs> to have that performance discussion. Really, we want to be talking about this on a regular basis. And, um, but I think that that's a model that can work really well in the sense that the advisor still has a healthy base. Um, you can still, you know, it's great for mortgage lending as well. <laughs> <laughs> because the scaling, you get 100% of the base, but then the commission's obviously uh, scaled a little bit differently. Um, so I feel that model works reasonably well. And over time, if, let's say, the, the base is too little and the, and the bonus is too high, therefore we should increase the base. So 
The idea is, is the base is usually about 70% of what the advisor earns. And then the, the bonus just fluctuates. When you said increase the base, I just kept thinking about like go nightclubbing, just like increase the base. <laughs> and did you, did you weigh up doing the commission split model? Because I know that's fairly common. And... Um, I weighed up, I, fundamentally it is a commission split model, right? And in the end, the advisor still makes their split in the end. Um, the difference here is, is they at least have a base to work with. Now, the reason why we put in the base was because we see ourselves as, a, I guess, in an advisory firm first um, and that we want to put out the good work uh, all the time. Not that a commission-based model does not produce good work. It's just I don't want a, you know, the ability to wait on a commission to come through to influence the, the advice in any way, shape or form that an advisor could make. And, um, and, and, and this is also just based on our experience working with clients who, not necessarily in the mortgage industry, but clients who are commission-based. Oftentimes you will have your great quarters and then you have your awful quarters. But mentally, if you've had a great quarter, it's very difficult to switch off and say, I've got to set that aside for a future dry period. Mm. It's very difficult to do that. Straight to the casino. Exactly. So if we just kind of draw a line somewhere at some point, <laughs> either 50% or 70% of what an advisor earns and that's their base, then that way effectively as they produce more revenue, naturally their incomes will rise anyway. And the timing of when a commission comes through shouldn't really have any bearing towards, um, towards their overall income at all. So that was kind of how we landed on that model. It did take a little while to get to that point, but I wanted to emulate something that um, at least sort of resembled resembled the bank remuneration structure a little bit, right? Um, where where it's predominantly base, and you've got this element of 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 bonus. And as your capability to raise in revenue rises, then so should your um, base as well. It's such a hard thing to decide, especially if you're bringing someone new to the business. You've got to train them, get them up to speed. Well, how, it's also, how do you get land on that number? Well, trial and error. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. That, it's that constant, <laughs> continuous improvement, right? Um, you you we could have potentially gone for a much lower base because then it's a it's a um, it's much lower risk to the business. But we. We landed at roughly 70% because I, I did a bit, more, a bit of research in terms of internationally kind of how does that actually look like. And actually for experienced advisors, incomes actually remain pretty constant, right? They, they, they gradually rise and fall, but you don't actually have big swings. And so the idea of having at least a reasonable base allows, um, um, allows for allows us as a firm to show to our staff that, yep, this is our vote of confidence because otherwise the risk falls on us. <laughs> and um, But we also don't want to increase the base too high because then we're taking far too much risk for what it is. And 70% just seemed like a nice, yeah. you know, a nice number where it's like, okay, cool, that's what it is. Um, and that way you're not too heavily influenced by the bonuses that come each quarter. And how do you meet your staff? Do you use recruiters, just people you know? Seek. Seek? <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, there's different models, right? Like I, I, I mean, 
prior, prior to this, I worked at iRefi and, um, you know, we were all, um, it's a close team and, and uh, I've, I've heard your story as well, how you're at the very bottom of the list in terms of W. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think mine was a little bit higher up with E. But, e uh, <laughs> yeah, oh, just, just for those of you who don't know, uh, I got my job at, Trail or yeah. Kiwi Advisor Network from Chuck going through his yeah. Facebook friends group, and I met him at a wedding. You go all the way through to W, and he's like, "Oh, I wonder what Warwick's doing. Oh, he's moving back to New Zealand." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so at the time, I was working at ASB Securities, and um, um, and Chuck was looking for to to build the team, and uh, so I had a related s- skill set, and um, I I got the job in in that regard. But then l- looking at my current Facebook uh, friends list. My Facebook almost turned into like a LinkedIn <laughs> because in the early days when we started the business, I was very active on the Facebook pages, right? I was very active in the property investors group. I was, I was pretty active in the first home buyers group, the the um, the barefoot investor and so forth. And so a lot of just random people would just add me on Facebook. And so my Facebook is probably 50% people I've, I don't know at all. <laughs> And fifty percent actually acquaintances, <laughs> and so I've actually become very cautious in terms of what I'm posting on my own personal Facebook page. But it just turned out that way. I, I should probably cleanse it at some point, but <laughs> it's hey, good networking. It's what well. it is. That's right. Yeah, for going through Facebook, I, I feel like now even people I went to school with, mm. and who the hell is that? And they've just yeah. had a name change or. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> well, that happens. That happens. But look, honestly, um, Seek was fine. Uh, we got. Um, we got a lot of um, varying inquiries coming through, but you do have to sift through a lot of applications. You do. Um, and, you know, luckily Irene will spend more time going through that. And to be fair, you you already have a bit of a gauge as far as what you're looking for. So you don't need to spend too much time on it. But if you've got like 100 applicants, right, you do it, you're still spending a fair bit of time um, actually looking through that and you are taking a chance. It's almost like rolling the dice. Say, this person I don't know, I've only met once or twice, let's say t- twice, let's say, for interviews. I'm now offering this <laughs> them <laughs> employment and especially in a small business where every single person you add can influence the culture in the business, um, it is a chance. But we just... Yeah. Got a trust. Well, how do you, how do you do the interview process? What can you do to mitigate the risks as much as you can to to feel comfortable? We have two to three interviews. Um, so the first interview is kind of really a, a a pretty generic. Tell me more about yourself, and we we and we tell them about about us because the interview is actually the moment where we are testing the applicant, and the applicant's actually testing us. I would much rather be upfront about what is our firm culture, how do we actually do things, so so that, you know, if someone that we've interviewed shoot things that actually we're not the right fit for them, that's fine. I'd much rather that we actually go through and tell them about our business and tell them about it as much as possible because it is an interview that goes both ways. In the second interview, we start going through a lot more scenario-based questions. So um, Irene's actually put together some really great, great questions that really test out different, um, different situations and different scenarios. Don't ask me. I was about to say, can we, can we do it now and see how bad I fail? <laughs> no, there's no, I mean. There's no right or wrong answer, but that yeah. is a wrong answer. <laughs> well, like a very simple one is, 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 is it better to get the work done 
um, get it work, be, sorry, I'll scrap that. Is it better to be late and perfect or is it better to be good and on time? Oh, God, good and on time. But, that, but that's the thing. Hey, like, it, but the thing is it also depends on the context, right? So if, it, if it's the context of, let's say, uh, financial advice, both outcomes are not wrong, right? Because if you go perfect and late, you can manage the lateness by telling the client, hey, sorry, I need an extra day. Um, but if the work is done correctly, then something that can impact someone a lot is, can go a long way. But likewise, you also don't want to spend too much time <laughs> on something because it's also ineffective. The 80-20 rule uh, applies. So there's no right or wrong answer per se, but it gives you a very good insight in terms of how someone manages their time and manages their day and whether or not for the role that you're asking for, whether they're right, they're the right fit. So in some jobs, that perfectionism is actually really, really valuable. But in some roles, um, actually that could be more detrimental than it is valuable. So I think some of those scenario-based questions can be great. Um, another one is um, like pretty, pretty random, but basically how many um, houses are there in New Zealand? And no one's going to have the correct answer because most people don't know the specific. It's how they work it out. Yeah. Interesting. I remember a friend of mine was interviewing at a, a large corporate and one of the questions was um, the client says uh, it's budget related. So they're like saying uh, the client says they have X amount of budget. How do we fit it within that budget? And the correct answer isn't how you fit it within the budget. It's why are we trying to keep it within the constraints of this budget when mm. the good outcome from the client is actually beyond that? Mm. Thinking outside the square. Yeah. So basically the first interview is a trying to get an understanding why is this person sitting in front of me? And likewise, um, that goes both ways. In effect, why do they choose you as the company to apply for? And the second interview is more scenario-based. It's, a, I guess, somewhat more casual because, you know, you can go, it can go all ways. And if you really want to reconfirm, if you need more time, third interview. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, honestly, most of the time, two interviews have been okay. And um, you can get a gauge pretty quickly as to whether or not someone's the right fit or not. But in the end, you just have to trust. Would you ever just go golfing or surfing or go to the pub? Maybe. I probably wouldn't because this works, I know, for a lot of people. I know just having a casual coffee catch-up that pretty much you can get a pretty good, good understanding in terms of what that person's like. But I think actually having a more formal setting is actually valuable in the sense that it creates a time and place that, yep, this is what we're doing, this is what we're talking about, because then, then at least you can make sure you actually cover across what you want to. The concern in the more casual environments is, is you might vibe with someone really well, but you haven't actually gone through and asked the things that are relevant. How does this person react in these sort of situations? Um, I think in more casual settings, you probably want to have more catch-ups. So let's say if you've been golfing with someone for a long time, right, and you know them as a person, you can then have a coffee catch-up afterwards and actually go through some of those scenario sort of base, base, um, base, base details because you already know that culturally they're probably a good fit. Let's talk about more about their experience. But I think if it's someone completely new to you, I think having some structure is actually valuable. This is actually something that my team have actually pulled me up on uh, before. 
I, I wanted to have this uh, mentoring sort of setup for everyone where I catch up once a month or once every two months and we just talk about what's, what's working, what's not working, um, you know, what, what would they like to work on, what's on their professional development plan. And um, we would go out for lunch. But the problem was is you're having lunch. <laughs> um, you spend more time eating and just, and uh, then you do actually talking about the issues at hand. And so the feedback to me was would much rather we sit in an office and we talk about these things rather than have this catch up that's we've only covered 20% of what we wanted to. So I think time and place. There is a time and place for when a formal structure is valuable and there's a time and place where a casual environment is valuable. But it also depends on the on the on the on the I guess the hiring manager as well, right? Um, what is how do we like to operate and what's our structure? You need to take the team out for those degustation meals where it goes for two and a half hours. And those ones, yeah, sure. But I mean, <laughs> <laughs> just drop a couple hundred bucks on it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I the mean, team would love it. I mean, uh, that's where the midwinter dinners come in hand, and oh, nice. you invite inv- invite the partners, and you, they, they you act differently when they're with partners as well. So, um, <laughs> not that I'm really kind of really assessing kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what what people do, but um, I think especially if you're hiring someone new, no way. <laughs> uh, you you got to earn your right for that. <laughs> true, true, true. Yeah, the overheads as well, just for. The interviewing process would be yeah. astronomical. Absolutely. <laughs> hey, really good insight there because I know a lot of advisors do struggle with that part. And you said at the beginning that, you know, you and Irene perhaps maybe a bit more on the conservative side when it comes to business. How do you take that leap of faith? Is it getting outside your comfort zone or how do you do it? Well, it comes down to that very that first time that we really talked about where is it would like to be. Um, and we, we, we sat across the table from one another. We tried to imagine. Wasn't it was, dinner, was it? It was lunch. It was lunch, so it was, so it was, it was lunch. <laughs> it was over food, but we really knew each other at this point. Bloody <laughs> <laughs> <you> hope so. <laughs> um, so we, and we just tried to imagine what does 35-year-old Eugene do? What's his personality like? How does he spend his time? Uh, what, and, 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 you know, how is he, you know, is he known in the industry? And, um, you know, what's, what is values or what are certain achievements or whatever the case is. And, and Irene would do the same thing. And that allowed, allowed us to somewhat conceptualize the direction of which that we're going to. And so therefore the decisions that we make in the end, does it line up with the vision that we're working towards? We need to have a mutual vision because if we don't, then we're going to work towards different directions and we'll always have conflict. So having that mutual vision does give us that Clarity to work together, and the thing is, is that in the end, you just sometimes need to need to give yourself a little bit of leeway in the sense that making this decision, let's say hiring this person, yep, the, in the end, this will grow our business. And if it and if it doesn't, we'll just need to cross that bridge at the time. But we know that eighty percent, most likely, yes, and therefore we just need to trust. We need to trust that we are equipped with the skill set to do it. And if we're not, we therefore learn from that process. And like now that our business is maturing a little bit more, you know, I've got challenges that I've never had to deal with before, like as a manager now in terms of dealing with now with experienced staff. Um, How do I actually manage that? Or what if there's conflict within the team or 
there's a complaint from a client. How do we actually ad address that? So these are issues I didn't really have when I was on my own, whereas I do now more as a manager. So these are different skill sets. Um, so I think in the end, we just needed to work together, um, have an aligned vision. And that vision came from at least starting somewhere. It doesn't need to be perfect because that, direct, that direction was, will pass. So if we think about, let's say, our options as different doorways, um, where you can say you can get to that destination through the forest or you can go across the lake or you can go across the, the city. If we know that the, 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 the destination itself almost is not relevant because if it's adventure that we're looking for, the, we just need to choose any path, but stick to it and vary with it. If we've gone down the forest, okay, well, have we got our bearings straight? Are we still going the right direction? What are we looking for? Do we need to adjust course? If we went through the city, okay, well, what are our key navigating points? What do we need to adjust to actually continue moving forward? And if we don't want to be in the city anymore, but we want to go to the forest, okay, well, which direction do we need to go to to get to go down to a different path? So having a mutual vision is important and then just trusting, um, just trusting the process, trusting our skill sets, trusting the people that we work with and, um, and adjust from there. Because <laughs> the, the skill set uh, for being a good advisor mm. and then the skill set for being a good manager, different. they're so different. different. And um, I know I might have talked about it on the podcast before, mm. but... Mm. There's a, there's a common issue in a lot of car dealerships mm. where the top salesperson just naturally gets promoted to the manager because they're the top performer. Yeah. It's a rite of passage. But then yeah. they get to that position, they're like, this sucks, and they hate it. It's, it's common not just in car. In, in, in the car sales industry, this is common across all industries, right? Um, a very common one is actually in the medical industry, right? Because the doctors get, you get promoted through your, through your knowledge, through your... Your, your technical understanding through your uh, expertise. And then eventually you might become, let's say, a, a senior medical officer or a consultant. That you're, an, you're a manager at that point, but you weren't actually equipped with the skill set of being a manager. You're equipped with the skill set of being a great doctor, but not necessarily the great manager. And as a result, oftentimes there's, there's difficulties there when then when they're, when they're managing their junior staff. This is common across all... Um, all industry. So I think for me it was saying, okay, I'm in this role now. Um, how do I actually build the skill, skill set? There are great podcasts on this, on this, um, on this, on the subject as well. Maybe seeking mentorship. Uh, managers toolkit. Okay, just on Apple, on, Spotify. Uh, yeah, on Podbean, but uh, probably probably all of the above. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Um, and um, and they will address different situations. And um, and it's actually a great way. There, I think just being able to be in the position where we're constantly learning. It's that attitude that we bring is actually important. So if I know that I've got a shortfall here, well, I've got to do something to build, increase my skill set in this new thing. Because you're, I mean, you're five years through this plan. You're probably halfway to that point where you're getting to your yeah, thirty-five. So I, I'm, 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 I'd say we're pretty much at that point, halfway. Yeah, and. Um, are you starting to plan for the, the years after you, your initial plan or like how does that um, work? Yeah, so kind of have a 10-year sort of run uh, because you don't really know what things will look like in 20, 30, 40 years. But there are a few things that we know will always be constant. So I know that I will always be 
working in some way or another. So even if I'm 65 or 70 years old or 75 years old, I'd still like to be contributing in some way or another. So knowing that's a constant actually gives me a lot of confidence. Yep, cool. I've got this plan to work through. I've got time to do it. Let's make each 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 adjustment as we as we go along, and we'll get there. Um, however, if I had a, if I wanted to retire, let's say at forty five, right? Then and I wanted to stop working at that time, then I've got a much shorter time frame to actually achieve that. But understanding what constants um, we have gives us guidance to what we should do. But I don't want to make the plan too far out. <laughs> because it doesn't give me much leeway to really adjust. Okay. And um, have you done, I mean, I'm sure you've done plenty of adjustments along the way, but is that 10-year goal, is that still looking very much the same as when you first laid it out or have your, the goalposts been shifted? Believe slightly? it or not, it's the same. Believe okay. it or not, I surprised myself, but things are going kind of as expected. I might dial it back a little bit. Uh, I might dial it back a little bit in the sense that, you know, I want to make sure that, I don't want to necessarily just have a business of X number of staff. That's not the objective. I want to make sure that everyone that works at Twine has is equipped with everything possible for them to have a fulfilling career and they can, then they can do the best they can for their clients. And if it means a smaller team, fine. I don't mind. Um, I'm, I think that's probably, the, that's probably the biggest change. So in essence, we're very much on track, but I think I probably... T- dial it back a little bit, making sure that everyone's successful um, before we hit this arbitrary objective of 20 staff or whatever the case is. Right. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's interesting because a lot of advisors that say, I want to build a huge scalable business, you know, starting out with uh, employee number one right here. And as they start growing, you know, wh- where, do you, where, where does success lie? Like where do you draw the line? Well, success is what you make of it. <laughs> Um, if success means um, having the time to spend with your family, great. If success means that you're proud of the work that you've done, great. Success means X number of dollars generated, that's fine as well. But I think it it is personal in that regard. But something that I something that I just have to wear is the fact that well, I've got people in my business, and I exist not just for myself. I'm not looking just for shareholder profit, but I'm predominantly actually looking for the best opportunities for my staff because in the end that will lead to the shareholder profit. So if I put my people and my clients first, everything else follows afterwards. And if it means later on making adjustments because maybe we're spending too much or maybe whatever the case is, we can dial that back wherever we need to. You know, I think that's probably for me where success lies and knowing that I'll always be working anyway <laughs> as a constant, that means that I want to create, um, you know, I put my focus elsewhere. I know that financially I'll be fine. I don't need to worry so much about that. And instead I, I, I worry about making sure that I've, I'm equipping my team with everything possible. Um, Probably another thing is is also looking at going through that experience of interviewing your future self. How do they spend their time? So if for me success looks like being able to work 40 hours a week, great. I'd like to be in that position where I only need to work 40 hours a week. 
for, if that's what success looks like to me, I'd like to be able to attain that. And that's something that for me I really value because then I have more time to spend on my health. I give more time to spend with my family or whatever the case is. In the early days of the business, I was working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And gradually that's wound down. So in many ways, I am working towards that direction of, in my view, what success looks like. But for someone else, they don't see the definition of, oh yeah, 40 hours is a classic work week, so that's success for me. Some people are more than happy to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week because they live and breathe what they do, and that's fine. Some people just want to do 20 hours a week. Some people want to work 20 hours a week. <laughs> Some people want to be, be in a position where they have just simply have more choices. So let's say they can spend um, more time with their families, maybe take break, turns between husband and wife in terms of who's got to work more or less or whatever the case is. So I think success is very personal. Putting a number figure on it, I think, is, is easy in the early days to get motivated. But it's not enough of a motivating factor for further on. I think if that comes from, if the success comes from something else, such as, you know, the well-being of my staff or the well-being of my clients or the number of hours that I have to spend on my health or whatever the case is, then so be it. So it's a personal, it's it's a personal thing. So I think, especially for for um, you know for other advisors who let's say um, are, are, are thinking about what am I actually working towards? I think going through that interviewing of your future self is a really good exercise. And uh, a glass of wine, maybe a bottle of wine is a great way to get started. <laughs> a vodka. <laughs> maybe. <Yeah. laughs> um, and, um, and so, and then that way you can get an idea of where you'd like to be. And if you can personalize it, it's easier. So this, the closer your time frame, the easier it is to personalize it. If you try to interview yourself from 30 years from now, it's very difficult because it almost feels like that's a different person. And that's actually why a lot of people actually oftentimes differ struggle with planning for retirement because that future self almost feels completely arbitrary to their current self and their their trials or challenges that they might have are, might be difficult to understand. So I think having a reasonably short time frame, five to ten years, and um, being able to interview that future self is a great way to um, get an idea as far as what does success look like. I saw a uh, great speaker at a conference last week and what they talked about was um, finding the end goal, what you want to achieve, where you are now and having a big gap in between, finding your gap. Like what are the what are the points you're going to take to get there? Good example they used was, um, I can't remember the guy's name, but he was the first blind man to climb Mount Everest. When he got to the top, someone said to him, don't let this be the best thing you ever do. Yeah. Satisfaction, we make you complacent, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, setting your setting your next goals. Like, uh, yeah. there any you want to well, share? Or um, again, it's it's just probably just building the vision, right? Um, it's building a vision of where you would like to be and and what you'd like to do, and um, um, bring someone along on the journey with you. So, in many ways, I'm very grateful that I work with my wife. Um, we don't do the same work, which makes things great because then we're not always <laughs> we're not <laughs> arguing, but um, um, but you know we we have complementary skill sets where we can where we, we do different things in the business and we can set our own vision and work together. 
But this can work the same way if you've got another, if you've got a business partner as well, right? If you, especially if they've got a complementary skill set, you can set your own vision in terms of what you'd like to be, and get and get others on your team to buy into that vision. Yeah. Johan Fritz, he had a similar thing. So he did the podcast recently, and yeah, he just got in a new business partner who had completely contrasting mm-hmm. skills to him. Yeah. Bigger picture, mm-hmm. you're going to get to the goal faster and maybe a better result at the other end. Yeah. Yeah, like for me, I'm more big picture guy. Irene's more detailed. Um, and that means that together we can put together what those next steps actually look like. So I think having that vision is a great way to get to get going, 100%. Um, but again, the that definition of success is arbitrary. It really depends on the person and the individual. Um, but I do, I do have that feeling of responsibility that, look, I've got people that work with me, so I want to make sure that they can be the very best that they can too. And, um, you know, and we're there, we're, we are there for them at this point in time in their lives to, to obtain that. And it might be a personal question, but how do you find being married to a business partner? <laughs> um, probably the hardest part is coming home and you're still talking about work, especially when you've got, Big decisions, performance reviews, hiring, or um, you know, or big spending decisions, or whatever the case is. Office I romance. Think. Office romance. No, just <laughs> <continue to. laughs> um, yeah, look, um, it's. I think the hard part would have been if we were doing the same work. I think we had very, intentionally very very early on. We wanted to make sure we did different things in the business. And in the beginning, in the beginning, Irene actually did not have enough work and twine to actually have a full-time role. So she complemented that with contracting and accounting work as well to top up the time. And, um, and she's like, well, I can help you. I'm, I've got more than all the skill sets required to actually help you with these loan applications. I said, no. Um, and, um, and the reason for that was is because then we will just be stepping on each other's toes. So I think drawing some boundaries is um, is is important. Um, otherwise, it's it's easy to kind of have that expand to home. Then you're talking about deals at home and things like that. Um, so I I think having those boundaries is a great way to at least minimize the overflow, uh, where work things are pretty much talked about at work. Maybe high level strategy was talked about at home, but not much else. So you've still got a separate office. Um, outside of your home, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. We, we we don't we don't really work at home, so we have a separate office, um, probably similar to this this yeah. place. And um, yeah, everyone shows up there. And even when as soon as the COVID lockdowns ended, everyone showed back up straight away. No one really is working from home per se, because even though we can, showing up in an office is actually a great way to kind of have that sort of team environment. Oh, so good. I, I feel like we missed it. Just being able to shout across the room, just yeah. workshopping something, yeah, so valuable. Yeah, so I mean, working from home is really like if you're feeling a bit sick or whatever the case is, sure. But <laughs> but otherwise, yeah, the office environment is great for that, and I don't see any change in that. Great. And how long have you had the office for? When did you take the uh, step we, to get an office? We got the office when we had our first external hire, so it was probably three and a half years ago. 
And um, because, I mean, having external hires is probably a little bit different having them come to your house. <laughs> um, so we... <laughs> hey, it's just me and my wife. Uh, we're the business. Come to our house. <laughs> well, the first ones was me. Then, then it was my wife. So we were, we, we were in the downstairs bedroom just working from home. And then my sister joined. She was the first, the first kind of hire. <laughs> so it was three of us. And she would commute all the way to our house. And she lived in Botany. You know, she still lives in Botany. And commuted to Hibiscus Coast. So that was a long way. And we all worked together in this one room in our house. And, uh, but when it came to the external hire, no way could that continue. <laughs> so we got a little office at that point in time. And then afterwards, we, we had actually acquired a larger office about a year and a half ago. Uh, we've got a bit more space, meeting rooms, all these sorts of things. And that was actually a great next step. Yeah, Nice, man. Yeah, good to share it. I feel like the new staff member, when they first arrive, you're kind of, here's your employment contract. Here's your adoption letter. That's right. Is. You're going to be our son. Yeah. Well, I mean, our office environment's reasonably homely in the sense that the dog comes in as well. So, um, so she's great. So we'll go out for little walks and things. So just it's a it's a habit that we picked up from from Irefi, the eleven thirty walk. <laughs> we still do that. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, I love it, and yeah. um, I can bring my dog to work as yeah, well. Exactly. Yeah. Um, our dog's a little protective of our office, so she's not too keen on. She's not too keen on uh, a lot of like tradespeople coming in because they because tradespeople come in like with intentions and plans, right? But uh, they walk with purpose. That's right. Whereas clients, they actually will greet, greet the dog and all happy. So no issues there. <laughs> Our dog. Um, I don't want to say this in a dog podcast, but she does this weird. Well, we taught her this trick where she like goes and sits in between your legs. Yeah, and um, it's good if you need to like call her, like come back into the middle. Yeah, but um. She thinks it's like a good thing to do to new people. So there's yep. people visiting the office yesterday <laughs> and our dog's running between his legs. Uh, you're probably looking yeah. where, she, where she shouldn't, but um, yeah. no, <laughs> not, fair here today. not here today. But, um, but no, it's, it's good to have that sort of separate environment. And it's just, yeah, working from home has its place. But in my opinion, it's again comes back to that sort of structure, right? Great. Uh, it's been, I don't even know how long we've run for. I have Eugene, no idea. But it's, it's Cut time, out where you need to. <laughs> yeah, time time flies when you're having fun. But um, there's so many great points in here because your your business is a lot younger than a lot of the other advisors. You yourself are relatively young. What are you, 30, 31? 30. 31, go. actually just in 31. Yeah. Just in 31. He's, he's so young, he doesn't know how, how old he is. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think it's a really good, um, uh, a lot of topics you cover off about, you know, hiring growing, sticking to a strategy, really valuable. Um, if people wanted to reach out to you, how would they find you? Um, just go on the website, twineadvisors.co.nz. Phone number's right there. Um, otherwise, just find me on Facebook or LinkedIn. Just reach out. Join one of the 3,000 people he's got on Facebook who he doesn't know. <laughs> sure. <laughs> At this point, why not? <laughs> on the pile. <laughs> That's right. Nice. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining today, Eugene. Absolutely. Thanks yes. for having me. Appreciate it. All the best. <laughs>